You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. We're going to continue in that series this morning in Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. If you don't have a hard copy of the text, but you prefer one, we do have some Bibles uh, under the seats around you. You can grab one. So once you're there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? I ran up here. I got to catch my breath. I was chit-chatting. All right. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here. We hope you enjoy yourself. Like Lauren mentioned, we are continuing our work through the book of Mark, marching right into chapter 10. And so we've got tons of work to do in this passage. What I'd like to do before I jump into it, though, is to pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray. Father, thank you for the great mercy that we have to worship you freely, for our children to have an opportunity to hear your word. My God, for us to be able to even have certain comforts like air conditioning and the heat, to be able to open your word and seek you, to take of your supper together, to pray together. We're so grateful for the privilege, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to not take it for granted this morning, but that you would open our hearts to receive, you would open our ears to hear, and our spiritual eyes to see that as your word is read, that my God, we would be ministered to through the power of the Spirit, and that you would speak to us, and that we would all hear and receive that which we need to hear and receive this morning as your children. We come to you humbly, and we confess, Lord, that we're dependent on you now. I ask my God that you'd meet the needs that are in this room that are both spoken and unspoken, known and unknown, through the power of your word, the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is one of those texts in Mark, but also throughout the Gospels that helps kind of create an expectation uh, and maybe even a tension as we approach it, not just because of the topic itself, but because of the uniqueness of how Mark records Jesus' words 
about the topic. So, so Jesus talks about marriage a lot. Uh, the Bible talks about marriage a lot. The New Testament talks about marriage a lot. But it's only in this text in Mark that Jesus is recorded speaking about divorce uh, and saying that it's impermissible on any grounds. Or maybe a better way to put it would be that he omits the grounds on which in other texts he says divorce is permissible. For instance, in Matthew and Luke, Jesus states that divorce is permissible on the grounds of sexual immorality, but here this is omitted. Now, before we get to the what's the why behind this uh, omission, omission, I want to address the fundamental Christian position on marriage. And the reason I want to do this is because the passage itself has much more, let's say, uh, consequence, thematic consequence to the book than just the issue of marriage. But my fear is that if we don't get through just getting some fundamental things out in marriage that we all might not even hear what it is that the passage says. So a few things about the preacher's role, the the pastoral role of working through, let's say, a book of the Bible. The first is this, scripture interprets scripture. When we run into seemingly contradictory or opposing opinions in the scripture, like difficult passages, we mustn't jump to our own conclusions, our own proclivities, our own desires but we have to go to scripture itself, other scripture itself to develop a right interpretation. One hermeneutic and theologians always say, let's say you have a difficult text, you rush to a more easily discernible and interpreted text and try to build a case surrounding what God might have meant in the difficult text. This is why in your Bible, you probably have something like cross references. You ever noticed that? Uh, Hey, you're reading this passage, but then this passage here, there's three other passages that express the same thing. We run to the Bible to interpret the Bible when it's not easily discernible. And so the reason for this is because the, the alternative would be to rely on our best guesses. But the Proverbs tell us there is a way that seems right to man and in the end leads to destruction. If Mark omits a key line in Jesus' theological position on marriage, we mustn't choose which one to agree with and reject the other, nor should we throw out Jesus' teaching as incongruent But we must ask the question, why would he do such a thing? Why might the author have chosen to write it in this way? Which leads me to number two, context illuminates content when you read the Bible. We have to ask questions like, who is Jesus speaking to? What questions is he answering? And who is asking the questions? Where is Jesus geographically located when he says the things that he says? Who is the author of record that is recording the words of Christ or the words of another? What reason might that author have to include or to not include certain details? Who is he writing to, for instance? What's the purpose of his writings? The last few passages in Mark, as an example, seem to align with the topics of the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't noticed this, some of the topics, they pretty much align with chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew. And so one might assume that maybe Peter is telling Mark his account of the Sermon on the Mount. The only problem is passages like this where there's omitted details or secondarily, the details surrounding these sermons that that Mark is telling us do not match the details surrounding the Sermon on the Mount, which was one long sermon to a big crowd. So it's likely, for instance, that Jesus is teaching the same topic in different instances in Mark to different crowds, different people. And in this particular passage, The Pharisees are involved in a way that they're not in the Sermon on the Mount, which is particularly important for the passage. Which leads me to number three, 
The Bible always means what it always meant. The Bible always means what it always meant. Another way to say that was the Bible cannot mean what it did not mean. It cannot mean to us today what it was not originally intended to mean to the hearers themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we may not have uh, understanding that they didn't have then. A good example of this might be the prophecy uh, that Matthew records that the early Israelites would not have believed was a prophecy. Matthew believed that in Hosea, when it said, out of Egypt, I have called my son, that that was prophetic and that that utterance was about the Messiah. But Israel would not have believed that. They would have not have known that because they did not see it in that context. They would think it was talking about them coming out of Egypt and that they were the son of God, the child of God. Israel was the child of God. So there's a way for a people to read the scriptures, let's say, and say what Israel originally understood the passage to be is not what it actually meant. Christians have always done this. We believe that the Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to Christ, and they didn't quite see that at the time. But we're not saying that God didn't intend for the sacrificial system to point to Christ. Does this make sense? So what we're trying to do in biblical interpretation is find God's original intent through the authors to the hearers. John Stott says it like this. The greatest task of the biblical preacher is to seek to interpret and understand what the original authors were communicating to their original audience through the Holy Spirit's direction and bridge the chasm between their world, first century Jerusalem, let's say, and our world, 21st century Atascacita, Texas. And to do so without falling prey to theological liberalism, and that is to say that the message itself is somehow tainted by the outdated views of the hearers of their time. And the hearers of antiquity, because of how outdated and outmoded they were, we must edit the message to suit a new and more enlightened audience of 21st century hearers. I just want to say that's not merely wrong, it's deadly wrong. We haven't evolved behind, beyond our need for God to disrupt us with his word that disagrees with us and disagrees with 21st century proclivities. In fact, we desperately need God to disagree with us on these things because we've become, almost abusively so, in love with ourselves. Any inclination to the contrary of this is not because we have uh, human understanding that has progressed, but it's because we have human pride and arrogance that has progressed beyond what we can bear. No, we need the word of God to arrest us. We need the word of God to challenge us. We need the word of God to say things that we wouldn't say to each other over dinner. And the Bible is faithful to do so only if we're willing to take the Bible at its word. So this morning we have a mixed audience, but that's true every Sunday. And what do I mean by a mixed audience? different backgrounds, different family histories, different stories, different stages of life, different stations of life. This morning in this passage, some are married, some are divorced, some are remarried, some are single. Some may be separated, some may be engaged, some may be eager to be married and they're single, some may be so jaded that they never want to marry at all. All of us together to worship the Lord Jesus. And if we're not careful, it's easy to get into the weeds and so what I'd like to do is, is to focus on two major questions. The first being, what does the Bible say about marriage generally? And then, what is Jesus teaching us thematically about marriage and our need for redemption in this passage? So let's start with more of a systematic theology just to get this out of the way. 
What does the Bible say in its totality about marriage? Number one, marriage, the Bible teaches, is a sacred and holy union of one man and one woman before God in covenant. Number two, marriage is a symbolic reflection of two major realities in the Godhead. First, God's heavenly union and love within himself. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. One God, three persons, all distinct persons, all fully God, only one God. Similarly so, one man, one woman, two have become one flesh, distinctly two, still one, in union, perfect love, grace, and union in the Trinity, and we are meant to reflect this. That's the first. The second thing it reflects, though, is God's covenant between himself and his people. And we're going to really flesh this out as we walk through the text, because that seems to me to be the major theme of this passage. Number three, divorce is the result of a fallen world filled with fallen sinners. The Bible never commands divorce. But God, through the Mosaic law, did permit divorce on very strict grounds. And it was done, as was the rest of the law, for specific reasons. The first is this. It was done to constrain the people from walking in gross sexual immorality and promiscuity and fulfilling their inflamed passions by simply marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing and marrying and, divorcing and creating such a brokenness. Now, I could, sp- I could spend a lot of time on that, and it was pretty much like maybe an hour into preparing the sermon that I realized I was not going to be able to cover everything, so I'm going to probably do a provcast afterwards. I skipped four pages of my notes this morning in the first gathering. We'll see what happens in this one. But in particular, things like the safety of women were greatly at stake, as they still currently are, even though we're not aware of them, uh, or at least we're unwilling to admit them, was, it was very obvious and on the surface with things like marriages. And so God is, is restraining the sin of men to divorce their wives and put them away and send them into very dangerous uh, territory alone or with children where they might be kidnapped, they might be harmed, they might be, you can fill in the blank, we have children in the room, you get what I mean. On the flip side though, this law in the, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy was also meant to restrain greater evil by permitting divorce because of hardness of heart, Jesus says. Meaning, what most commentators would say, is it's helping to keep a man or a woman from killing their spouse in order to get out of a marriage, doing something even worse, like murder, because they know they can't get out of it with the legal system in Israel. Now you may be saying, that's insane. Really, all you gotta do is check out top 10 on podcasts, seven of them are this story. Okay. True crime. I'm telling you, it's, it's nuts. You know, watch Dateline. You know that this is a fact. Now, Christians, number four, should seek to maintain union with their spouse at all costs. The New Testament's filled with this and, and are scripturally permitted to divorce on very strict grounds laid out in the gospels by Jesus and Matthew and Luke and by Paul in first Corinthians as a last resort. Now, how do we apply this? I'm going to try this. My only time I'm going to do this the whole time, I'm going to try to hit different groups and say, how do we apply this theology? Number one, if you're married, cherish your marriage and acknowledge the spiritual battle that is waging around you to disrupt that sacred institution. I cannot underscore to you enough how much that there will be spiritual battle around your covenant in marriage. If you have or you are considering divorce, run from it with all your might. Your marriage is worth it. Into the arms of Christ and God your Savior, he can redeem, he can restore even the most difficult and broken of relationships. And so I commend to you, please hear me. Divorce cannot and will not solve 
spiritual issues that exist and manifest themselves in your own marriage. You may even have Christians around you right now that have went through that and would love to take the mic from me and tell you exactly what I'm saying. Now, number two, if you're divorced, by all means, grieve the loss that you've experienced, but do not grieve as one without hope because you are betrothed to Christ now. Look to God who is able to redeem and restore broken things. Seek obedience to his word. He is faithful and true. Number three, if you're remarried, by all means, you can grieve what you have also lost, but do not grieve as one without hope. Cherish the sacred union that now exists between you and your spouse today. And now you have a fresh understanding and fresh insight to the spiritual battle that's waging around you. Guard your covenant and seek to honor God with all your might by also ministering to other couples with the wisdom that you now have by spilling blood on ground that they may not have to. And then number four, if you're single, seek to honor God with your life, but entrust to him your future. Do not succumb to fear. Seek the kingdom of God and believe Jesus' words that everything else will be added unto you because your heavenly father knows your needs. And there is a unique blessing to singleness that's spoken of by both Christ and by Paul. And yet still, only he knows your future and trust yourself to him. Now, with that address, what I'd like to do is dive into the text, and I want to answer the most pressing question that I find in this passage particularly. Namely, why do the Pharisees choose marriage to test and trap Jesus in front of the crowds? Now, that's the real question here. They bring up marriage to Jesus in front of the crowds to trap him and to test him. We've been walking through Mark and seeing that Jesus constantly, whether directly or whether indirectly, he threatens the authority and the power of the Pharisees and they have grown to loathe him for it. And it's my contention that the reason that in this passage Jesus does not include the biblical grounds for divorce that he does in Matthew and Luke is because the primary covenant that he is addressing, both with the Pharisees, the crowds, and then privately with his disciples, is the covenant of God with his people, and he is using the marital covenant as his means of communicating that message. And that that is the vision of the marital covenant that has always been since the beginning. So let's start by reading this passage Mark chapter number 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 and stop a little bit. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as, he, as was his custom, he taught them. So we know that there's crowds involved, not just Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees came up, listen to this, in order to test him, in order to test him. This happens often. The other gospels record it. Uh, this word could be in order to trap him in order to tempt him. They want to uh, build walls around Jesus that he can't get out of the box that they create for him. And ultimately they want to undermine his message, his authority and his ministry. And so they have all talked together and they've thought of this particular way to do it. And so they asked him, quote, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees question about what is lawful is essential. They are appealing to Moses. So what is their intention? Jesus has been skirting the traditions of the Pharisees and he's been ministering to people who would be ceremonially, ritualistically unclean. He was ministering to the outcast. He was speaking to people that they didn't believe a rabbi had any business of speaking to. An example of this would be John chapter four, the, the woman at the well, Jesus ministers to this woman. She is a woman who is not only a Samaritan, unclean, but also who had been 
divorced and remarried five times and was currently cohabitating with a man who was not her husband. And Jesus ministers to her. And Jesus extends mercy to her and then she becomes a missionary, an evangelist for Christ, telling everybody in the town about it. Secondarily, Jesus ministered to a woman caught in the act of adultery. John chapter number eight, she's tossed in front of Jesus at his feet and the leaders of the day say that she is uh, guilty because they found her in the act of adultery and therefore she should be stoned according to Mosaic law. And Jesus tells them that sure, they are right. She is guilty and she deserves that, that anyone who is without sin can be the first to cast the stone. From the oldest to the youngest, they walk away. Jesus is alone there and says, does anyone condemn you, daughter? No, not one, neither do I. Your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. This scandalized the Pharisees. He has no business even speaking with her, much less forgiving her sins. And then lastly, Jesus ministered to prostitutes. A woman of the city wet his feet with her tears and anointed his feet. And despite the jeers and the taunts of the Pharisees, Jesus turned to her and forgave her of her sins, saying to Peter, she loved me much because she is forgiven much. Now, this frustrated the Pharisees. And so they asked this question specifically, particularly for a reason. They want to trap Jesus in this question because if he admits that the law of Moses is irrevocable and correct, he will out himself as an unlawful rabbi, that his ministry is a revolutionary act. And now these women will alienate themselves from him and the crowds will no longer love Christ as he admits that he was wrong and Moses was right. Or if he rejects the law of Moses, he'll be tossed aside as a heretic. The common faith of Israel was that Moses was the patriarch. And if he, he says now that, no, I don't agree with Moses, then he'll be rejected and the Pharisees will be seen as the religious conservatives that they are. Now watch how Jesus responds. Verse three, he answered them, what did Moses command you? Now I mentioned this to the nine, I think it's important. If Jesus starts asking you questions, you've lost. You have already lost this battle. They don't know it yet, but this is like that moment and like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the old, I think it's the 90s movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer. It's about the little boy who is a great chess player. And at the end of the movie, he looks to his opponent and he's, he, he offers him a draw. And the boy's like, I'm not gonna draw with you. Like this game's still going on. I can win the championship. He says, no, you've already lost. And of course, the boy doesn't take the draw and Bobby Fischer wipes the floor with him and that's the end of it. That's Christ here. This is like offering a draw. You've lost when he asked this question, but they don't know it. And so he asks them, well, what did Moses say? Verse four, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore a, male, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, while the Pharisees hearken back to Moses, Jesus, he defeats them quickly here because he hearkens back to Genesis. They say, well, here's what Moses said. And Jesus says, you don't even know why he said it. Here's what God said in the beginning. That's just the starting line of this complete dismantling. Now, in doing this, Jesus accomplishes two things. Number one, he defines the law 
as God's response to a sinful and broken world, not as God's ultimate purpose in the beginning. God's original and ultimate intent for his heavenly kingdom is manifested in the kingdom of Christ, where not merely a series of law will restrain evil, but instead that the citizens who are born again of the kingdom of Christ will be filled with the spirit and the Holy Spirit will govern their minds and hearts and they will be constrained by the love of God, his covenantal love, and that will become a law upon their hearts. The citizens of the kingdom will be restrained by love from God for God and this will be manifested in Christ until he returns forever to not merely restrain evil, but to eradicate evil forever. He points to the Pharisees and says, this is not something new I'm teaching. That was God's original design. Hence, he outflanks the Pharisees by saying, I'm not for divorce at all because neither is God. And now they're put on their heels. Now what do they do? Because they were basically saying, look at this revolutionary, this crazy, you know, this guy, he just thinks he's willy-nilly ministering to all these women of the night. And then he comes out and says, I'm way more conservative than you. Doesn't stop there. Then he challenges the view of the Pharisees that the institution of marriage should be seen through an Israelite lens. Notice, when we hear that they appeal to Moses, but Jesus appeals to Genesis, what should we think biblical theology? Israel began as a nation with Abraham, but was not consummated as a nation until the Exodus. And so the Mosaic law was this beginning point for Israel's new nation, the civic law. And that's where the Israelite Pharisees are focused. Do you know where Jesus is focused? The garden. Their big problem with Jesus is that he hangs out with Samaritans, that he hangs out with Syrophoenician Canaanite women. And Jesus is saying, well, that was God's original intent from the beginning because our father is not Abraham, but Adam. By going back to Genesis, he says that Genesis predates the formation of the people of Israel and he strikes out at the Pharisees' disdain for Samaritans and Gentiles. He's now con- he has now asserted himself as more conservative than the conservative Pharisees on marriage, cutting them out- off on that front. Simultaneously, he outs them as rigid adherents not to God's law, but to their own traditions. And he has shown that they themselves actually don't care about the people like he does. He's more open than they are to the world, not just to Israel. They're demolished. They have nothing to say. Now, why is marriage central to this conflict? We have to ask this question. I don't think the Pharisees know. I think they thought it was a good question to ask, and hopefully they could make it. Like, this is like a viral social media clip they were looking for, right, in the first century. We got Jesus, but they didn't. But I think that Jesus knows clearly he is waging a cosmic battle in this discussion, not against the Pharisees, but against Satan, of which they are players in that battle, even if they're like non-player characters. Marriage from the beginning was God's design for his heavenly love and unity within himself, but was also his reflection of his covenant with his people, first with Adam and then with Abraham, and now in Christ. That's the key. Let's do a little bit of work here. The Jewish people would have known about Israel's spiritual adultery. Read the prophets, it's pretty much full. I would just challenge you, it's probably not nighttime reading for your little ones. The words that are said in there about Israel, for instance, from the prophets are, I don't know, maybe get you censored on social media. You know, it's pretty harsh. And the Jews would have known this. Read Hosea. God speaks about the adultery, the spiritual adultery of Israel constantly. 
The certificate of divorce, as it were, would have been the exile that they received from God to get out of the land, and now you are under your new husbandmen, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. You want to be married to them? Well, go ahead. But the Jews had forgotten that this was a mere repeat of something that it was ancient, and it happened long ago in the garden. Adam and Eve's first sin was not a sin of gluttony, wanting to eat fruit and eat more in the buffet than God had for them. It was a sin of spiritual adultery, that they had chosen to side with Satan and become his husbandmen by believing his lies. And in so doing, they also were given a certificate of divorce as they were exiled out of the garden. And yet both certificates of divorce aren't exactly that. Because in both instances, both with Israel and with Adam, God had this promise that was laden within it. He told Israel in Hosea, I cannot be done with you, Israel but I will bring you back to myself. And in Genesis, as Adam and Eve are being exiled out of the garden, Genesis chapter three, he says to the woman, through the seed of the woman, I will, I will send someone who will crush the serpent's head. He is not done with them. We see this even in God's reaction to Adam and Eve when he kills an animal and clothes them with skin. Their nakedness and shame, he clothes them. See, God had a fidelity to Israel that the Pharisees were absolutely committed to, but they had forgotten that God had a fidelity to humankind, his creation. And that just as Hosea was fulfilled in Christ and the coming of his kingdom, so Genesis would be fulfilled in Christ. Because if in Adam all die, Jesus tells the Jews, so in Abraham all die, but in Christ you can be alive. He's telling them that they too must come to him. Now why? That may sound very theological, but hear me very practical. The Pharisees had stopped with the grace of God offered to them in the prophets. They were blind to see that just as Israel had committed spiritual adultery and God had shown grace, so had the rest of mankind, all the Gentiles, all the Samaritans. And so in their blindness, they could not perceive why Christ would minister to this Samaritan woman who had five husbands. Why would he minister to the woman of the night and the prostitute? Why would he forgive the adulteress? They could not see that apart from Christ, they were under the same condemnation. They could not see that they were that woman. They were the spiritual adulteress. And Jesus intends to show them, this is who you are. And friends, in case you were wondering, that's who you and I are apart from Jesus, who's come not merely to reveal who we are, but to tell us he is the husbandman now who's come to make the purchase for his bride again. He's going to lay his life down for us. And so the disciples come to him privately and Jesus reconvenes with them and he unveils the original design of God from Genesis of covenantal love, unity, truth, and grace between one man and one woman as a testimony to something greater. Do you understand why marriage in the Christian ethic is so important? Because it's a testimony to the fundamental covenant God has made with us in Christ. That's why. Marriage, among many other things, is a glorious testimony about who God is and what he's done. Now, why is this important for us practically? Very simple. Christian marriages cannot successfully maintain their marital union apart from understanding and truly believing this message from Jesus. Unless we are drinking deeply from the fountain of God's covenantal faithfulness, we will inevitably be hounded and motivated by our sinful proclivities. We have to drink from this covenant from God in Christ if we are to maintain 
any earthly covenant. This is very simple. It's fundamental Christian doctrine. Your vertical covenant with God will inevitably impact every other horizontal relationship. And if this is broken down, everything else will be. Okay. Now, I want to end with this last point before I close. Why is Christian marriage worth fighting for? And I have a few reasons here. I hope that this is in some ways a helpful little palate cleanser from some of the intensity. First, marriage is a testimony of God's covenantal love to the world. This is a letter that Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote to his wife, Susanna. And I want you to listen to this. It's not going to be up behind me because it's too long. Listen to this for the flavor of the way that they saw marriage. In 1871, Charles Spurgeon wrote to Susie, quote, My dear one, none know how grateful I am to God for you. In all I have ever done for him, you have a large share. For in making me so happy, you have fitted me for service. Not an ounce of power has ever been lost to the good cause through you. I have served the Lord far more and never less for your sweet companionship. The Lord God Almighty bless you now and forever. Now, in case you're wondering about Spurgeon's life and what did he accomplish in ministry, of which he said she was the greatest gift to him, that she was the greatest help to him in that ministry. Spurgeon opened over 100 orphanages. Spurgeon is an editor of The Sword and the Trowel, which was in a newspaper that went out weekly. He was the pastor at Metropolitan Tabernacle, one of the largest churches in London at the time. And he, by hand, answered all of the letters that were sent to him by people who were asking theological questions. He wrote multiple books, pastored multiple pastors, pastored multiple new pastors, and even pastored brand new believers. He did home visits all the way up until his gout basically made him bedridden. This man's life was filled with fruit. And he writes to his wife and says, she is the largest share of the good of God's testimony through him. Later in the same year, he said this, I have been thinking over my strange history and musing on eternal love's great riverhead from which such streams of mercy have flowed to me. Think of the love which gave me that dear lady for a wife and made her such a wife to me, the ideal wife, and as I believe, without exaggeration or love flourishing, the precise form in which God would make a woman for such a man as I am, if he designed her to be the greatest of all earthly blessings to him. And in some sense, a spiritual blessing too, for in that I am richly profited by you, though you would not believe it. I will leave this good matter now, or else the paper would be covered with ink, but not until I have sent you as many kisses as there are waves of the sea. Your marriage, our marriage, if you're a Christian, is about God's covenantal faithfulness being on display through human relations, through your love, through your grace, through your mercy, through your sacrifice, through your care. And that's what their marriage was. Now, Spurgeon was not a man who said that he never had struggles in his marriage. In fact, he said, marriage is not all sugar. But he said, grace in the heart will help you to keep out most of the sour. Number two, marriage is a gift from God to be enjoyed. This is the response from Susanna Spurgeon. After Spurgeon died, Charles Spurgeon died, Susanna Spurgeon put together these letters to be edited and to be published for us to read. And listen to what she says about them because she feels a little shy that they're so vulnerable. Listen to what she says. Quote, I've been trying in these pages to leave the love out of the letters as much as possible. 
lest my precious things should appear but platitudes to my readers. But it is a difficult task. For little rills of tenderness run between all the sentences, like the singing, dancing waters among the boulders of a brook, and I cannot still the, I cannot still the music altogether. To the end of his beautiful life, it was the same. His letters were always those of a devoted lover as well as a tender husband. Not only did the brook never dry up, but the stream grew deeper and broader, and the rhythm of its song waxed sweeter and stronger. Close quote. Now, when I read that, I thought, I hope that Morgan writes something at least like 0.5% like that. Because we all know I'm going first. I mean, it's not like I'm the model of health up here or anything, you know. But I also read that and thought, oftentimes, we should ask ourselves, do we see one another as the gift that they saw one another as? Now, I get it that Charles has died now, and it's easier to look back, isn't it, and realize the gift once it's gone. But what a travesty that is. You read this, and you you notice that they both saw one another as God's gift to each other, that God had chosen this. And therefore, their union was not just some, you know, fight to be religiously good. No, God had chosen this union for each other, and therefore, they received this great gift. And they saw any difficulties as God conforming them to his image and not their own. Lastly, and I think this is the only thing that I'll say apart from maybe in a podcast about verses 13 through 16, which it's not coincidental that the children show up. The children show up and they talk about marriage because who's most impacted apart from you? It's the children. And that's why I'll put here, marriage is the engine through which a godly legacy is created. And the last couple I want to point out is Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. This comes from John Piper's biography, not on Jonathan Edwards, but on Sarah Edwards. And I want to read to you what's written here. In 1900, A.E. Winship made a study contrasting two families. One had hundreds of descendants, but they were a drain on society. The other descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards were outstanding for their contributions to society. He wrote of Edwards' family, quote, Whatever the family has done, it was done ably and nobly, and much of the capacity and talent, intelligence and character of the more than 1,400 of the Edwards family is due to Mrs. Sarah Edwards. By 1900, when Winship made his study, this marriage had produced 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers and a dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians and a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, including three U.S. senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, a controller of the U.S. Treasury. Members of the family wrote 135 books, edited 18 journals and periodicals. They entered the ministry in platoons and sent 100 missionaries overseas, as well as stocking many mission boards with lay trustees. That was in 1900. Consider what it is now. Winship goes on to list kinds of institutions, industries, and businesses that have been owned or directed by Edwards' descendants. Quote, there is scarcely an American industry that has not been one of, his, this, one of this family's <clears throat> among its chief promoters. We might as well, with Elizabeth Dodd, say, has any other mother contributed more vitally to the leadership of a nation? I love that they attributed rightly to Sarah a lot of this. They attributed this to her. We often forget because by nature, by our sinful nature, we're selfish people. 
that part of the reason that marital unity is so important is because of the legacy of the children. And this should not shock us because that reflects our father who loves us so dearly that he too sacrificed for his children. So much so that our older brother Jesus died for us as children. So how much sense does it make that the little children run up to Jesus and they run up in the middle of him preaching this sermon about marriage and they say, get the kids out of here, we're talking adult stuff. And he says, you leave. If you don't become like them, then you'll never enter the kingdom. And so I want to leave with these three application points. Okay. And I say these for all of us because I think they're helpful for all of us. And let us be, not, be careful not to be like the Pharisees, that we look at one another and you know, hope that so-and-so is applying this. No. Number one, we must stop using the bricks of Egypt to build the temple of God. When we use the world's best practices, listen to the world's best advice, buy into worldly ideology on how to be married or how to raise our children, it's like the Israelites going back and using the bricks of straw that they had used to build for the Egyptians and trying to build the temple with it. It would never work. It won't stand. It will always crack. God has a design for your family, and the world's design cannot and will not work. So instead of, let's say, reading books from the best psychiatrist about how to raise our children, what if we read the Bible? I'm just going out on a limb here. Just read the scriptures. I'm not against all the other books. I'm just saying maybe we've become a little too reliant upon a lot of outside knowledge and we haven't read the most fundamental. Like let's say the Proverbs, you know. That's a good one for child rearing, I'd say. <clears throat> I know that because I'm a big kid and it's good for me. How about this? Rather than writing into, you know, Salon Magazine for the advice from the editor, what if we prayed? Good idea, right? We sought God's face. What if rather than calling one of our friends that we know doesn't believe what we believe about marriage, but we know that they'll affirm to us how bad our husband or wife is, what if we called upon our Christian friend who we know is going to tell us what we don't want to hear? So maybe we should get off social media, stop using everyone else's doing it as our metric for making decisions. You know, the more that I pass, the more that I realize when we grow up, we just become like better at developing the same excuses that my son gives me for our actions, but they're just more flowery words. But they're pretty much the same. Not a good metric for making decisions is that most people are doing it. You know, let's just use the example of when Moses comes down the mountain, most people are dancing naked around a golden calf. It was not the right decision. All right, number two, this may be one of the most important things I say, surround yourself with people who know and love Christ, know and love you, and this is key, and care about your marriage as much as you do. Friends that are fun to hang out with are one thing, but friends who will strengthen you when you are weak, fight for the things that matter when you are intent on giving up on those very things are more precious than gold. The people that you spend time with always have a worldview. If the people who give you advice don't view marriage as a sacred covenant, don't expect them to all of a sudden change their mind in the middle of the night when your marriage covenant is on the rocks. You need people who already believe that, that will speak life into you when you are weak, that will pray with you when you're not interested in praying, that will tell you the truth even when you don't want to hear it. People that care about you, that would not abuse your marriage by coming in 
the side door of your marriage to affirm one spouse or not the other, create the tension, just people who love you. Lastly, number three, probably the most practical, this is going to seem ridiculous, but I'm just telling you, repent together and forgive each other in Jesus' name. Admit your sin to each other. Call it sin, not accidents, you know, that's important. Say, hey, I sinned against you in this way. Not like, you know, I'm not perfect. You won't believe how many times talking to, you know, Christian couples and like, well, have you guys confessed your sin to one another or repented? Well, she knows, you know, she knows I'm not perfect. Have you told her that you're sorry and you repent of your, well, I mean, she knows I'm sorry. I mean, I mowed the lawn. I don't do that unless I'm sorry. (laughs) Admit your sin, ask for forgiveness, confess your weaknesses, and then hear me, extend forgiveness to your spouse. Pray in Jesus' name. Now, I want to say this just because I love you. If you're justifying yourself right now by saying, I don't have any sin to repent of, the Proverbs say you are a foolish man or you're a foolish woman. And I, I'm not going to, the Proverbs tells me I'm not going to gain any ground with you. But yet it still says back to back that I shouldn't answer the foolish man because it won't get anywhere. But it also, the next verse says, answer the foolish man lest he's wise in his own eyes. So I will tell you, you are a sinner. Even if you think that your spouse is the worst person in the world, and they, they're the one that's at fault for all this, you have sin to repent of. You should seek God's face to see what that is. Okay. I want to end with this. The offer to us all, though, no matter what category we are in, is wholeness in Christ. That's the heart of this message. He has kept the covenant, friends. He's a covenant keeper. Jesus Christ loves you. No matter where you are in your covenant of marriage, in your life, he and he alone has kept the covenant and extends to you wholeness, grace, mercy, pours out love to you. And he stands at the ready for this. I fear that many of us, when we reject that offer, have become victims of like a spiritual Stockholm syndrome where we have become attached to our captor the enemy in the world has made you captive to its ideology. And so you are convinced, just like our first parents were, that Satan's offer of liberation is really liberation. No, it's not. He offered Eve liberation, and as soon as she took up the offer, the clamps came down. He was lying. But we've become like, you know, defensive of our captor because we've identified with his aims. And Jesus is saying, I've set you free. Come to me find life. And that's what I offer, not because I have anything to offer, but it, because Christ is all I have to offer this morning. And it's plenty. I want to pray for two things. I want to pray together that God would forgive us where we have strayed and been spiritual adulterers and to restore us in his name. And then secondarily, that God would shine the light of his covenant faithfulness through us, no matter what station we're in. So I'm going to do that. And then we're going to take communion together. So let me pray. Father, first and foremost, we confess to you, forgive us, my God, both collectively and individually, where we have strayed, where our hearts have not been covenant, faithful men and women, where we have not taken our betrothal to you as it should be, and we have sought out idols to fulfill our needs. Forgive us, God, where our hearts have strayed, and restore us now as you've promised to, Lord Jesus.
back to your side. And Lord, help to shine the glories of your covenant faithfulness through us, no matter if we be single or married. No matter if we have gone through a divorce or we're remarried, God, whatever station we find ourselves in, shine the glory of your covenant through us now and give us a humility towards one another because we find a common identity now in you. We love you, my God, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.